0: Revelation 1, verse 9, and this is the Word of God. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying... flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you today that your word does stand forever. And Father, as we see uh, John here grasping for words to describe what he saw, so Father, our words are inadequate to describe the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. So Father, this morning we pray for your Spirit's help to grasp what you're saying here. Father, to shape, see how it would shape or transform our lives, Father, the way we think, the way we speak, and the things we do, that you might be praised. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. He was a wise and godly elder, and I was a 20-something preacher, and um, a prayer warrior and veteran teacher, he knew his Bible well, and he said he had a question that was bothering him. I said, well, well what is your question? And uh, asked him, he said, well, how come the children were not afraid of Jesus? And uh, I said, well, well why, why should they have been afraid of him? Uh, and he said, well, do you know what Jesus looked like? And I said, well, not exactly, but I do know that Isaiah says he was pretty much just an average-looking guy. And um, he said, oh, no. And then he read me these verses from Revelation that we read this morning. And he said, that would have scared children. Uh, and uh, well, he'd be right if that was the way Jesus looked during his earthly ministry. Uh, but he didn't. What John sees this morning is the ascended King Jesus in all his glory and his splendor and his might. He's clothed with majesty uh, and with mystery uh, as he carries out his ongoing ministry. So in a book that has a whole lot of numbers in it, and three is one of the most important numbers in the book, we're going to look at the three M's that come from the passage, and that would be the ministry and the majesty and the mystery of Jesus. So we to learn about him and about ministry. Let's, let's go to the text and see. We'll start with the ministry that John receives from God. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. If indeed we're right, as we suggested a couple weeks ago, that John's writing about 95 A.D., uh, it's, it's, uh, he's undoubtedly the most famous living believer in Christ. He's the last of the apostles. Uh, yet he doesn't lay claim to that. He simply calls himself John. He shows amazing humility. And he identifies himself with his readers uh, by calling himself a brother uh, and a partner. What he's saying is, we're in the same family together. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Likewise, when it comes to Christian ministry, oh, we are all partners. We're in this together. As Dee talked about this morning, one of the things with our missionaries, we view them as our partners in the gospel. And to be sure, they're the frontline troops. Uh, But we're the support troops behind them. And specifically, as brothers and partners, we share in three things that John links together here because he just uses one definite article, and that is suffering and kingdom and patient endurance, which we might think of as as perseverance. We share in kingdom responsibilities. We're to live out the values of the kingdom, the truths of it, we're to live out the proclamation of it. That's always going to involve suffering. And it's Jesus who enables us to face that suffering and persevere. We're in this situation because it says we're in Jesus. John identifies himself and his readers as in Jesus. And so that becomes the basis for why we face trials. We're in Jesus, but also at the same time why Jesus helps us through those trials. We're in Jesus. Remember, John's on that small rock island called Patmos as a political prisoner of the Roman government due to his faith. So tribulation is is present for him. It's, a, it's an enduring reality for him. Even as he writes about tribulation. He's being held prisoner because of his beliefs uh, and and proclamation of the Word of God and because of the testimony that Jesus had. Now, that word testimony is, is a legal term there. That's to testify in court. Um, and, uh, and, just, and it might be just as the world rejects the testimony of Jesus, and worldly courts reject the testimony of Jesus, one day heavenly courts will reject those uh, as, a, as a basis for judgment. And so what emerges as we come all the way through Revelation is going to see is, is judgment is coming for the world for unbelievers but also that judgment is coming for believers who compromise with that world Uh, and as we'll see that judge who's coming is jesus himself so verse 10 i was in the spirit on the lord's day And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So, what day is it? What Sunday? It's the Lord's Day. Uh, It's the day the church gathered then and still gathers today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do it every week. It's the day we anticipate that Christ is returning. We particularly concentrate on the, the celebrating Christ's final triumph that's coming one day. And on this particular Lord's Day, John declares he was in the Spirit. Now that's important as we work our way through the, these verses and, and the book. What John's doing there, he's barring from the imagery that we have with the prophet Ezekiel in his call to ministry. So while uh, uh, John is physically present on Patmos... He does not despair. He's in the Spirit. He's part of that partnership we spoke of. It's a partnership that's first of all with Jesus himself. And so we may find ourselves in difficult circumstances, but be in the Spirit. Ezekiel was in the Spirit. He had to proclaim the Word of God. So too John is commissioned to write down God's revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's standing there, and suddenly he hears a voice that, uh, and and the language here is important, it sounds like a trumpet behind him. All right? Now you're going to notice the word like throughout the passage today. John's going to hear things, John's going to see things that he does not have a vocabulary, human words, to describe. Uh, so he's going to give us comparisons with things that we do have some idea about. And most of those we'll see are drawn from the Old Testament. That goes through the book. Now, I dare say if any of us were standing up here and uh, Dan or Isaac Burkhardt or, or Carlin came up behind us and blew their trumpet, what would we do? We would all jump. We would be startled, right? Um, and so this, is, this voice sounds like a trumpet. Even as Moses on, on uh, the mountain... Uh, heard the trumpet in Exodus 19, uh, just before God revealed to him the Ten Commandments. So too, John hears this loud voice with this assignment. Write down what he sees in a book. Then he says, give it to these seven specific churches that he names in in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. The order here is the same one he's going to follow in chapters 2 and 3. It's the same one that if you made a circle and left Ephesus, you were going to deliver the mail. It's the path you would follow. All right. It's just how you would do it. Uh, And so what happens? Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. All right, John spins around. Who wouldn't? We all would. And the first thing he notices are those seven golden lampstands. But you'll notice he says nothing about them yet, and so we won't either. Because what captures his attention is this one like a son of man standing in the midst of those lampstands. Friends, what captures his attention is the majesty of Jesus Christ. It's an incredible sight, it's the overwhelming glory of the ascended Jesus. And so now it's left for John to describe for us what he sees. And the key Old Testament reference here is what we read in our Declaration of Truth. It's Daniel 7, 13 and 14, declaring that this one is like a son of man. And if we turn that into New Testament terms, he's the judge and the ruler of the churches and of the universe. Certainly his clothing he wears anticipates for us the the ministry he's going to carry out. This picture of Jesus is is key to the message of Revelation. Revelation. It's like a good movie trailer. It makes you anticipate and want want to see the whole thing. Um, so we'll talk about Jesus' appearance here. It's pretty special. Again, remind you this is not to be taken literally. All right? John's using human words drawn from the Old Testament to describe the majesty of Christ. What he says, the images are, are familiar to his readers. So give them a taste of the majesty of Jesus. First John says Christ is wearing this long robe. The term he uses is it refers to a priestly robe, indicates Jesus in his purity as a priest and his service to the church. His sash is like one that the high priest was supposed to wear during his ministry. It's actually a very normal piece of a, of of a, of, a, of a man's clothing. Uh, what's not normal is it's golden. It's made out of gold. And so that would suggest if you can afford to wear a gold sash, what? You either have great wealth, maybe you have great beauty, or you have great power. It's about his position. And so that's where he wears the golden sash. And we know in Daniel 7 that Daniel sees God on his throne and he calls an Ancient of Days. And Daniel says what? His hair was white like wool, right? Well, John describes Jesus with those same words, with the white hair. He's identifying Jesus with the Father when he does that. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Throughout the Old Testament, whenever God appears in a theophany uh, to people, we have fire. Whether it's Genesis or it's Exodus, uh, Ezekiel or Daniel, uh, uh, we have that fire. And these eyes are are penetrating us. Uh, They allow him to see what's going on in the hearts of people. And so we watch that in the Gospels. Uh, we see him see into what people are thinking all the time. Uh, Hebrews 4.13 tells us, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And it's those penetrating eyes that are eyes of judgment. And then check the shoes out that He's wearing. Like burnished bronze, like refined and fire. Now, you can't get these from Nike or Aria, all right? Uh, They might try to make these, but can't do it. Uh, The idea is gleaming metal. It points to the metal that that we see in the descriptions of of God in Ezekiel and in uh, Daniel as well. Uh, Von Poitras suggests that that it's it's just, he says, there's a multiplicity of, of vague illusions here. Because bronze is a harder metal than ordinary gold or silver. Uh, it's frequently used in weapons. It's associated with judgment, then. Uh, the fire suggests judgment, but refined by fire, it says. Accompanied by some intense purity. What does fire do? It's a purity and shows the glory. And then we have the voice it's like the roar of many waters emphasizing this loud and it's powerful. And again, we, we, we see that in Daniel and Ezekiel and Exodus. Or go check out Psalm 29 with a description of the voice of the Lord. And coming out of his mouth is this sharp two-edged sword. You might look at Isaiah 49 for this. Maybe our thoughts would go back to Hebrews 4, especially verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you remember, the word of Jesus is so powerful that he could summon Lazarus from the grave back to life. Uh, he could calm the sea, he could call demons out of people. Uh, likewise, he has the power to punish. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, he says, and to reward. This day you will be with me in paradise. And David Strain asks a great question here. He says, where is his voice heard like this today? This mighty roaring waterfall. The sharp double-edged sword. And his answer is, this voice is heard every Lord's day. When the Bible's opened, and its message is read, and it's proclaimed. Now what we're doing right now might not seem like much to the watching world. But as we see here in Revelation, going behind the scenes, seeing previously unseen spiritual reality, we're learning the nature, of, uh, true nature of things. And see, the simple exposition of the Scripture may seem insignificant compared to the relentless cacophony of the world's uh, noisy rebellion. There are times when it hardly seems an effective response to the challenges that we face. But again, John says, look behind the scenes and what you see is the unstoppable power of the word of God. And he's challenging us to place our trust in God's word. Jesus' word may appear weak to the world, make no mistake, but it's mighty to save. And by the word of God, Jesus will conquer. Do you remember that Paul calls the word of God the sword of the spirit? This book seems like an unlikely weapon for warfare. But understand, this is the number one weapon we have in the battle we face with this world. And finally, we have his face shining like the sun. Go back to Isaiah 60, go look at Ezekiel 1. But especially Judges 5. Judges 5 is Deborah's song of celebration for the great victory in Judges 4. And you come to the very end of that song. Uh, and she describes her warriors, her soldiers, as God's friends uh, in whom the sun rises in all its might. So in other words, what John's anticipating here is predicting is Jesus' triumph in history. Uh, the emphasis overall with this whole picture is the majesty of christ a majesty that's reflected in his appearance but it's not just the majesty that overwhelms john but it's the ministry of jesus christ remember what was the first thing he saw when he turned around it was those seven lampstands Um, and he knows what those are this is the lampstand from the holy of holies that was used to provide light for the priest to see and now what There are seven of them. He's already written in his gospel that Jesus is the light of a dark world. And he also knows that in Zechariah 4, you have this same same lamp. And there it's described as that with which the power of the Holy Spirit comes. Not just to light the world, but to build, rebuild. The power of the Holy Spirit goes to rebuild the temple after the exile. Uh, He provides the power today for that. And today, the church is the temple that the Holy Spirit is building, that Christ is building. His dwelling places in us. And so the seven lampstands, we're told very explicitly in verse 20, are the seven churches. And again, by using the number seven, he's talking about the whole church. But going from one to seven, he's expanding it just from the people of Israel to all the nations of the world. So the anticipation is that the lampstands, the churches, will in fact be the light of the world that God shines through in a dark world. So don't miss out on the fact that here's Jesus in all His majesty and all His glory and He's walking among the lampstands. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the great shepherd. And His presence there is like God in the glory cloud in the Old Testament. Remember the the glory cloud that stayed with Israel in the middle of Israel in the desert pillar of fire by day and a cloud by day and pillar of fire by night Um, and it was God's presence there in the temple when the tabernacle became the Shekinah glory that dwelt among the people of God so just as the priest cared for the lamp in the temple and cared for the temple Jesus is in the midst of the lamp stands and he's tending those lamps like the priest in the Old Testament as a church, we can be reassured by the presence of Jesus Christ in our midst, that He keeps the flame burning and He keeps the body believers safe and effective. He's the great warrior who fights the battle for us, and He's among us. So, with that in mind, we want to look at the mystery made known. Uh, verse 17 When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. John's overwhelmed. And we can sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. And that's a very true hymn to sing. But friends, never lose sight of the Jesus that's described here. The majestic, awesome picture painted for us. One that like Isaiah and Ezekiel, when John sees it, he falls down on the ground in worship. And Jesus, like God did with Ezekiel, responds with a touch and with words. First he says, fear not. Then he echoes the words of Isaiah, consistent with what we said Jesus said last week in verse eight. And Jesus makes several bold claims. First, he says, "I'm the first and the last," using the same words that God the Father uses. Jesus says he has complete sovereignty over all of human history, from beginning to end. Second, he says, "I'm the living one." To be sure, I died, but I'm alive forevermore. Jesus, through the power of the resurrection, has turned back the power of death. And so he says, I'm the living one. He's already won the ultimate victory. In fact, he says he possesses the keys uh, to death and Hades. Friends, Jesus and Jesus alone determines who will be liberated from hell and who will not. So, what incredible hope for John and for us. With that in mind, John, Jesus rather repeats what John's ministry is. And he's going to be spurred on by this new vision of the glory of Christ. He's to write everything he has seen, what he's seen now, and then he's going to, what there's soon to take place, what God's going to unfold for him. Uh, and he's going to declare that Jesus stands in complete authority among the churches. To be sure, they're undergoing hard times. They're undergoing much tribulation. And from their perspective, they seem to be in defeat. So John's ministry encourages us to embrace the mystery that comes with the majesty and the ongoing ministry of Jesus among his people. So what's that mystery? Now keep in mind in the New Testament, mystery is typically what's been made known to us as believers. But the world still does not see. They don't get it. Um... And so it to them remains a mystery. They don't understand Jesus. One mystery is this. He does rule and reign over the whole universe, and the church's tribulation, they coexist. They're simultaneous. The world thinks the church's tribulation means defeat. But we know that ultimately Christ triumphs. See, what's a mystery of the world is that Christ triumphs by the cross. That death is the way to life. It's a mystery that Jewish expectations of an earthly kingdom give way to a spiritual kingdom. Such as God's people, we do not possess the same earthly ambitions that the world possesses. We're not to be driven by a quest for power. Or money or popularity, but by love and by sacrifice and service. And the world does not understand that way of thinking. The world doesn't understand either the power or the reality of humility. Then one last ministry: mystery. What emerges in the book of Revelation will be a book of judgment. make no mistake. But it's also at this same time a book of comfort for the people of God. So, what about us? You know, one of the interesting things here is the contrast between the Isle of Patmos and in the Spirit. And that's where we live. We live in two realities uh, we're, we're on Patmos, we're exiles, we don't fit in with the world around us. But we're in the Spirit, we belong to God, and we're spiritually blessed by God despite our circumstances the romans exiled john to the island of patmos so that the world would forget about him and then what's he turn around and do he writes a book that's encouraged the church for 2000 years the roman empire fell but john's words god's word still lives and so these verses should should overwhelm us with majesty And let me just say, if you find yourself in awe and yet you're still not a believer in Jesus, let us talk to you today and share with you the majesty and mystery of Christ. But for those of us who are believers, our response should be to fall down and worship. Embrace the mystery that Christ is reigning, even when we look around, and it doesn't seem to us like He is. In 92 A.D., just probably about the time or a little bit before John writes this, Domitian murdered 40,000 Christians because they refused to accept his claim that, God, that he, we, he was Lord and God. See, all they had to do to get along with the Romans was, was go down to the, to the temple to the emperor and, and take some salt and, and toss it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. And then they could have gone about their business, done whatever they wanted. But 40,000 of them would not, did not and were executed by Domitian because even in the face of death they would only say that Jesus Christ is Lord. We need to heed the words of Christ. We need not be afraid. Jesus is in the midst of his church today. Revelation takes us behind the scenes of history and behind ministry and it shows us the things uh, that things are not as they appear to be. Uh, you know, in the Wizard of Oz, they, they pulled back the curtain, and then all the people got was a frightened little man. Uh, but when John pulls back the curtain, it's the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ that's seen, as well as his iron grip on human history. As believers, we need to, uh, we need to base our faith on unseen reality that a risen, conquering Jesus has the whole universe and all of history and all of eternity in His hands. It's this exalted vision of Christ that enabled the church to face the Roman Empire in the first century. Fierce persecution tribulation. And I trust it's the same vision and of His triumph and of His ministry that takes away our fears today. Gives us a perspective of how things really are as we engage his world until he comes, proclaiming the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you. We, Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the King who reigns. And Father, forgive us for those times when we lose sight of your sovereign greatness Forgive us, Father, those moments when we turn our eyes to the circumstances around us and away from you. Father, may we submit to your will. May we thank you that Jesus is the Lord of glory even now, that he walks among his church even today. Father, help us to trust him. or not to fear the world, the politicians, the polls, but to trust Jesus you may here that's yet to know the wonder and the glory of knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord, Father, show them Jesus Christ even now in all His power, might we pray, that they might come to know Him as Savior and Lord. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.